Well, good morning, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to this TR90 Body Burn 30 support call. This call happens Monday through Friday at this time, which is 6.40 in the morning Pacific time. Mountain time is 7.40. Texas time is 8.40. And Michigan and East Coast time is 9.40. Welcome to the call. For those of you that don't know who I am, <coughs> excuse me. I'm Susan Mann out of Portland, Oregon, welcoming you to the call. If you ever miss these calls and want to pick them up on recordings, you go to the app Sound, S-O-U-N-D, Cloud, C-L-O-U-D, put in Frank, F-R-A-N-K, Lomas, L-O-M-A-S, and TR90, and these calls will pop up. They are now archived back more than nine years. With that being said, if you get your podcast through a different service, again, if you put in Frank Lomas, and TR90, they could pop up, or anti-aging solutions, the digit four, and anti-aging. So solutions, the digit four, and (coughs) anti-aging. And I want to welcome you to Thanksgiving, which is November 25th, 2021. And I've been sharing some information with you about... um, out of it, out of oh, out of a book that's called Fat Chance and Beating the Odds Against Sugar, Processed Food, Obesity, and Disease. And I left off with <coughs> why fructose, fructose versus ethanol, pick your poison. And this was written by Robert H. Lustig. There's a lot of scientific, scientific um, notations in here. Uh, for actual studies, so what he's writing is very truthful. Studies of alcohol show that it's that a little is good for you. Alcohol raises the HDL or the good cholesterol, and red wine has the compound reversestrol that is thought to improve insulin sensitivity and longevity. As with alcohol, a small dose of fructose has been shown in some studies to have a beneficial effect on insulin secretion. The toxic effects of fructose, just like those of alcohol, are dose-dependent. For alcohol, we have empirical evidence that in most people, a maximum dose of 50 grams per day, or about three glasses of wine, is a threshold for toxicity. This is likely the threshold for fructose as well, slightly less than a quarter of an a quart of orange juice. The problem is that the current average adult fructose consumption is 51 grams per day. That means the, that more than half of the population is over the threshold. When you look at the chronic alcoholics versus the consuming masses consuming massive amounts of sugar, they will often appear very different, at least on the outside. Many alcoholics are thin, if puffy compared to those consuming massive amounts of sugar. But remember, we're not concerned about the subcutaneous fat. It's the visceral fat, the fat that surrounds your organ and often remains invisible to the naked eye that's going to kill you. Both alcohol and sugar significantly increase your visceral fat. 
your likelihood of developing associate and your likelihood of developing associated diseases. The difference between the alcoholic fatty liver disease and the non-alcoholic fatty liver disease lies only in the terminology, the effect on the body is the same. Of course, the major difference between alcohol and sugar is alcohol's intoxicating effects. The brain does not metabolize fructose, and people don't get arrested for driving under the influence of sugar. But the liver's metabolism of fructose is remarkably similar to that of ethanol. Fructose isn't the only cause of obesity, but it is the primary cause of chronic metabolic disease, which kills slowly. Fructose can fry your liver and cause all of the same diseases as this alcohol. We know we must limit our ethanol consumption or face the consequences, but sugar flies under the radar. No small wonder Saudi Arabia and Malaysia have the highest rates of type 2 diabetes on the planet. No alcohol, but they're drinking soft drinks like they're going out of style. According to the International Diabetes Federation, the global diabetes pandemic currently claims 366 million people. That is, that's a prevalence rate of 5.5% of the world's population. They're breaking the bank on health care worldwide. While it would be easy to lay the blame on the fast food industry, those outlets continue to propagate worldwide and lots of countries whose populations do not overindulge in McDonald's are also experiencing increases in obesity and diabetes. What changes in the food globally? Hmm. My colleague Sanjay Basu and I are attempting to answer that question by looking at food supply data worldwide. The Food and the Agriculture Association, or FAO, monitors the world food supply. The FAO keeps close tabs on food supply data broken up by type of food stuff. We link the FOA food supply database with the IDF prevalence database and with the worldwide gross national income database to control for poverty. We are currently performing an epidemiological analysis of 154 countries around the world known as the ecological analysis between the years uh, 2000 and 2010. We asked two questions. Does the increase in caloric intake per capita correlate with the increase in diabetes prevalence? And if so, (coughs) is there any indication any aspect of the diet that explains its relationship. In the time period we studied, diabetes prevalence worldwide rose from 5.5% to 7%. Surprisingly, total calories did not correlate with diabetes prevalence worldwide. Instead, the correlation with the percentage of calories coming from sugar and sugar crops was enormous. For every 100 calories supplied as sugar, the prevalence of diabetes rose by 0.9%. 
Even after controlling for obesity in each country, the amount of sugar availability explains more than one-fourth of the increase in diabetes prevalence rates worldwide during the last decade. Even after controlling for aging and obesity in the population, and those countries whose consumption went down experienced a reduction in diabetes prevalence of 0.18%. This is not correlation, but rather causation. If you had any residual doubt about a calorie is not a calorie, this analysis should remove it. Every additional 150 calories per person per day barely raised diabetes prevalence. But those, if those 150 calories instead were from a can of soda instead of increase the diabetes prevalence rose sevenfold. Sugar is more dangerous than its calories. Sugar is a toxin, plain and simple. There are clear limitations to doing this kind of analysis. First, food supply does not automatically mean consumption. However, in most parts of the world, the two are closely aligned. Only in the United States do we throw away significant amounts of food, up to 30% of what we produce, Second, populations are diverse in economic status, vulnerability, and food preference. So what you learn from a population may not immediately may not be immediately ascribable to one individual. Third, estimating diabetes prevalence is always difficult. Different countries use different criteria for diagnosis, and many people go undiagnosed, and the IDF holds people with type 1 and type 2 diabetes together. Nevertheless, or nonetheless, the robustness of the effect is undeniable. The global industrial diet that revels in sugar consumption clearly negatively affects the metabolic health of the entire countries unrelated to obesity. The sweetest taboo, fructose reward addiction. Now you're thinking diabetes, liver dysfunction, cancer, dementia, and aging. It couldn't get any worse. Could it? Oh, but it can. Not only does fructose turn your liver to fat, your proteins and your proteins brown, but it tells your brain that you need more of it and more. Remember the starvation pathway? And the reward pathway, and similar to the effects of alcoholism, fructose stimulates excessive and continued consumption by tricking your brain into wanting more. Fructose drives reward and food intake. So <coughs> recall the lessons on leptin. Anything that blocks leptin signaling will be read as starvation at the hypothalamus, and a lack of reward by the nucleus accumbens, both of which drive long-term food intake. Anything that alters the meal-to-meal hunger, satiety signals will drive short-term food intake. When you don't feel full, you consume more. Fructose does them all. 
Consum- number one, consumption of fructose does not stimulate an insulin response, so leptin doesn't rise and the animal keeps eating or drinking soda, as the case may be. Two, long-term fructose consumption generates liver insulin resistance and causes more chronic hyperinsulinemia, excessively high blood insulin, which interferes with leptin signaling and promotes further food intake by preventing dopamine clearance from the NA. Number three, ghrelin, a peptide produced by cells in the stomach, is the hunger signal. And in humans, ghrelin levels rise with increasing subjective hunger, peak at the time of voluntary food consumption, which is why our stomachs grumble at noon, and decrease after a meal. However, fructose intake does not decrease ghrelin. Therefore, caloric intake does not, is not suppressed. Indeed, fructose consumption in the form of a big gulp does not reduce the volume of solid food needed to feel satiated, multiplying the total calories consumed during the meal. So, I think, let's see, what are we on for time-wise here? We might just have deconstructing Darwin. So why do we have this fascination with sugar (coughs) in the first place? And why does sugar make us want more? What's the selective advantage? We saw that insulin blocks leptin signaling to promote leptin resistance in order to allow weight gain associated with puberty and pregnancy to occur. We saw that sugar stimulates the brain dopamine and opiates to let us know what foods are safe. But why should sugar cause insulin resistance and hyperinsulinemia? Naturally occurring sugar in fruit is what makes fruit palatable. But for our ancestors, fruit was readily available for one month per year, called harvest time. Then came four months of winter and no food at all. We needed to stock up to increase our adiposity in preparation for the four months of famine. In other words, in the doses that were available to our forebearers, sugar was evolutionary adaptive. Indeed, fruit binges among orangutans in Indonesia are responsible for their altered energy intake (coughs) and in changes in weight. For their normal diet, they consume 21% of their calories as fruit, as opposed to when fruit is plentiful during a binge, at which point the figure rises to 100%, and this results in high insulin driving energy storage and cyclical adiposity. But with our current global sugar glut, devoid of fiber and high in doses 24-7-365 days, our weight gain is not cyclical anymore. It's a process that has become maladaptive. Face it, we are fruit. Still, while sugar is the biggest perpetrator of our current health crisis, it is by no means the only bad guy. There are, quote, antidotes to the fructose effect, 
that they have been removed from our environment as well. The rest of part four will lay bare the rest of our toxic environment. So we'll be getting into some of that next week. Fiber is half of the antidote, just to give you a, a brief idea of what's coming up. With that, I want to wish you a happy Thanksgiving. Make sure to get out and get that 35 minutes of moderate to heavy exercise today. That will help offset some of the overeating. So, you know, one of the tricks that I use is if I see something I really know is not really good for me, just to have two bites, see, and savor those two bites and say, okay, that's it. I'm done with that. <coughs> so to self-limit myself. And enjoy your Thanksgiving. Enjoy your family and friends and the time you're spending together with that. This is Susan Mann signing out for uh, November 25th, 2021. And if you're back here tomorrow, we'll have Victoria sharing another meditation to get our weekend off to a fabulous start. I'm going to take us off mute so we can say goodbye to each other. So, my friends, why we have found out that sugar and fructose is toxic to us. With that, I'm going to let everybody go. Have a great holiday, everyone. And we'll be back Thank tomorrow. You. Thank you. You're See welcome. you tomorrow. Happy, okay. happy Thanksgiving.